Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. It's back on the podcast, and in this second part, we're going to take a look at Greek history from 330 BC until 2023. He's the author of the book, The Greeks, A Global History, which is also the title of this episode. And the last one, we're going to take a look at his Greek history from 1500 BC until 330 BC. And... Let's just start right away because we don't, don't need the introduction as we did last time because you don't want well, don't have to watch this episode last week's episode to understand this one. I highly recommend you do it should do so. But you know, we don't we're not gonna get into the introduction as we did last time. But let's start from the age of Constantine as we talked about ending last week's episode and then move to yes. Constantinople. <laughs> And we talked, like I said, I want to begin with his son, actually, because he was, unlike Constantine, he was not a Christian. He was a very much a pagan still, wasn't he? Oh, this is the Emperor Julian, who yes. was who was a cousin, I think the relationship was. He was the younger generation. Right, he? yeah. He was a cousin of Constantine's son. He was one of the same family. And um, I mean, the memorable thing about Constantine is he was the first Roman emperor who decided to support Christianity and he became the first Christian emperor of the first Christian ruler of the Roman Empire and after him right through for more than a thousand years the empire that we now call Byzantine was a Christian empire but there was one brief exception from the years 361 to 363 when the Emperor Julian, who was a relative of Constantine, attempted to reverse all that, to put the clock back, to bring back the worship of the old gods, to have sacrifices in front of temples in the way that they used to do for hundreds of years. And because of that, he's always ever after been remembered as the apostate, meaning the the denier of Christianity. He failed. But it was it was a fascinating episode in Greek and in also in Roman uh, European indeed history. What what made him was he a popular ruler or was it, was he favorite? Because there was still quite a lot of pagans in the in the Roman world. But he, was he a popular ruler or what? What? Why did how come he failed to try to bring back paganism? Yeah. Well, I mean, first of all, you know, as I said at the end of uh, our talk last time, uh, Constantine was the first Christian empire, emperor, but it took really 200 years before the whole of the Roman Empire became fully Christian until the time of Justinian. So there was a lot to play for. There was a lot of, um, uh, you know, uncertainty. People were getting used to new ideas. 
there was some competition between Christians and non-Christians. And generally, I mean, Constantine himself and his successors, they were quite tactful in introducing Christianity. They didn't, by and large, use force. They didn't try to uh, intimidate people into becoming Christian. Uh, they, they, you know, they were subtler, but basically they wanted to encourage people to become Christian. Oh. That meant that, you know, 30 years after the time of Constantine, there was still a lot of pagan things going on. Julian, uh, <clears throat> Julian as a young man, went to study philosophy in Athens. So he learned, uh, you know, he learned ancient Greek. He learned the he learned to read the ancient Greek philosophers. He read all the Greek literature, and he he loved he loved all of that. And I think really his idea was almost to elevate the old Greek ideas of uh, philosophy and literature and mythology into something equal to, or as he saw it, superior to Christianity. So he actually wanted to, you know, to organize ancient Greek religion in a way that it never had been before. It was a strange, you know, it's always called putting the clock back, restoring the old ways. But in many ways, Julian was actually trying to reinvent the ancient Greek religion along the lines of the Jew the Jewish religion or Christianity. Mm. So it was a curious kind of hybrid. If he hadn't died in battle. Um, 18 months after he came to power, who knows, he might have been successful. Mm. But he was killed He was killed in battle, and nobody really had any great stomach after that to carry on his project, so it mm. fell by the wayside. Of course, they don't have time for to go through the time. We are going to go through the entire Byzantine history as well, but we don't have time to go through the most... Mm. Some, all of this, it, unfortunately, yeah, as much as I would like to, but we... Some of the next emperor that I want to talk about, of course, is I feel like he's definitely worth a mention here, is Theodosian, who, of course, is in the, known for the, the famous Theodosian walls. So let's talk about Theodosian for a while and how did he thought about building the significant and beautiful walls of Constantinople. Yeah, well, this is Theodosius II, who came to the throne, I think, in 408, and he was very young at the time. The walls had been begun just before, I think, before he came to the throne. They were finished, at least they were inaugurated in 413. And um, so it was really the prefect of the city, a man called Anthemios, who probably should deserve the credit for designing and building these massive walls. But this was a, you know, a stupendous fortification. It's three layers thick. It's a series of walls and ditches and guardhouses. A large extent of that is still extant. You can see it. It's a, you know, a significant uh, monument in the middle of today's Istanbul. A dream um, of mine personally is to go to Istanbul and just walk, go through the walls and look at just take a look at these significant, marvelous. Yeah, I mean there's. Yeah, I mean, there's one short stretch that has actually been reconstructed or and restored in modern times. <clears throat> Quite a lot of the rest is in a very ruinous uh, condition. But they enclose a wide, you know, a wide urban area. Um, Constantinople was, it was barely 100 years old, but it was already a big city and growing. But this was in the early 5th century. There were, it's the time of, you know, in inverted commas, the barbarian Incursions. There were barbarians on the move. 
Um, people from outside the empire were crossing over, crossing over the Danube. Uh, some of them were Christian, most of them were not. They were regarded as dangerous. They were hostile. They were they were armed. Um, you know, nothing like the migrants or asylum seekers of today who come genuinely seeking help in Europe. These were people. Um, whole family groups with their warriors, their menfolk, their women, their dependents, their, their carts and their agricultural implements. They wanted to move, or they were under pressure, to move to find somewhere to live in a new place. And they crossed over into the empire. They were a real danger to the institutions of the empire. And the Theodosian walls were part of the very effective defences that were too much for the barbarians, made it too much for the barbarians to conquer Constantinople. So some of those barbarians, as a result, headed west and they they set fire to Rome instead. And famously the, the famous the, the invasions of the Huns in the in four fifty one. And this is where of course the end of the Roman Empire This is the end it's the end of the Roman Empire in the West. But the Roman Empire continues uninterrupted in Constantinople in the East for another thousand years. So let's start with the Byzantine Empire. And it, you do hesitate in using that name in the book for a little while and further into the into <clears> the book when you talk about them. But let's we spoke about the Theodosian, but there's someone I want to talk about that is rather significant, and that is the peasant Justin. Who became, how how does he manage to become the emperor and form a form a kind of dynasty in Byzantine world? Well, the the great figure here is Justinian, oh. who came to the throne in 529. And he codified a thousand years of old Roman law, so that whenever today in, in the world we talk of Roman law as being the basis for modern legal systems, this is based on the compilation made by Justinian scholars on his orders in Constantinople, but wasn't it his father who was a peasant to enter the throne, if I remember correctly? That he... <clears throat> well, yes, indeed. I'm sorry, he came to the throne in 527, not 529. Yeah. Um, uh, 529 is when he issued he issued his first law codes. Um, his uh, his uncle, actually, he, I think it was his uncle, Just Justin, mm. right, was the the simple uh, the simple Balkan. Well, they said he was a peasant. He wasn't very highly educated, but he was a military man. Mm. And very often Roman emperors rose from the ranks, through the ranks of the uh, the military. So, yes, uh, Justin, the uncle of Justinian, was 70 years old when he came to the throne. Um, how, did, how did it justify, did he assert the throne? How did it justify his claim to the throne? They had a very, well, they didn't really have an organised system. Um, sometimes it was the son of the reigning, reigning emperor, but more often than not, it wasn't. Mm. And there was an old Roman custom that actually, rather than, you know, emperors came and went, they could be deposed, or when an emperor died, it would very often be the army um, or the commanders of the army who would get together in a huddle and they would, um, you know, they would promote their own candidate and the, you know, the, most, the strongest man would win. In those days, it, it actually devolved not just to the army, but to the, the ordinary people of Constantinople. And what happened was everybody got together in what they called the Hippodrome. It was a kind of mm. um, race course, a chariot used for chariot racing in the middle of the city. 
and all the citizenry would gather there and they would cheer they were divided according to the the chariot teams that they supported mm. and if you were you know a candidate would be supported by the blues which supported one bunch of chariot racers or another by the greens who mm. supported another and quite often they would come to blows in the uh, in the hippodrome and it was when you got enough people in the hippodrome um chanting the name of one particular candidate that person then emerged on the balcony and everybody would say you know you are the emperor you know we bow down before you and that was how justin became emperor yeah. he then adopted his his nephew justinian as his uh, as his son and justinian therefore in his mid 40s um came to the throne you know with that uncontroversially but justinian was one of the longest reigning emperors he reigned until five six five, I think it was. Um, so, so it's more, you know, more than just over uh, more than thirty five years, mm. um, and also one of the most effective. He um, the really three main three main things he did. One I mentioned was codifying the laws. Yeah. The other was he built the great cathedral church of mm. the Holy Wisdom, Hagia Sophia in Greek, and thirdly. He sent his armies west into the Mediterranean with a fleet of transport ships into the western Mediterranean. He reconquered a significant part of the Western Roman Empire in the west, in the around the Mediterranean that had been lost to the barbarians. So it's often this period is often referred to as the Byzantine reconquest under hmm. Justinian. Right, and so how how does uh, and you mentioned Hagia Sophia and. Let's let's talk about the building. It was didn't take that long, if I remember correctly, to build to build Hagia Sophia as it was might have taken. An extraordinary feat to build the what was for a thousand years the largest building, certainly the largest religious building anywhere in the world, and it was built in just five years. Yeah, that that's significant. It is. I mean the the Parthenon in Athens took fifteen years. And even that is considered a pretty remarkable feat. But uh, Hagia Sophia, it's a it's a huge church. Um, it's um, it's enormously high, something like sixty meters oh. to the to the top of the dome, and it uses this highly sophisticated, at the time really quite new Roman system of engineering and architecture, so as sufficient, you know, capable of raising a wide dome on top of um, already very tall pillars and that dome is still standing today hmm. and we will of course mention Islam a, bit, a little bit later as well but isn't Hagia Sophia as well one of the recent inspirations behind how mosques would end up being designed as well indeed indeed and certainly from the um, <clears throat> from the uh, from the Ottoman conquest of Constantinople and some way before that the standard design of the certainly the Western, um, the Ottoman mosque was really based on on Hagia Sophia. Um, so you've got the dome, the obviously in Islam the minaret is added, but the principle of the the square pattern, square or rectangular with a dome on top, that's um, taken over from Saint Sophia, and with variations the same pattern again is followed in some of the great Renaissance churches of the West, the the Saint Peter's in Rome. Uh, St. Paul's uh, in London, uh, the great cathedral of Florence, for example, um, all have domes. 
But St. Sophia is the first the big religious building, and it was indeed the biggest for a thousand years, to have a uh, to have a dome. So that's literally mo a monumental achievement that survives uh, to this day. While you're talking about Justinian, before moving on, of course, it's one of his most infamous future. It was married an actress at the time. It was, it was not being an actress or actor was not like being Brad Pitt or Angelina Jolie today. It was from more or less thrown upon like being a prostitute. So, how did it justify marrying Theodora, who would, who was known as an actress at the time? Well, exactly. I mean, he was one. You know, he was um, he was a very pious emperor. He was one of the first who insisted that every citizen of his empire must be a Christian. So he was a staunch upholder of, and indeed enforcer of the Christian religion and its values. The stories about Theodora are very, they're very curious. And one of the problems about that um, is that the a lot of what we know about Justinian and his reign was written by a very sophisticated, highly educated man in his court called Procopius. And Procopius wrote a book in which he praised all the wonderful things that Justinian did in his in his buildings, including St. Sophia. He wrote a very detailed and fairly uncritical account of the various wars that Justinian had waged. But then nobody quite knows why he wrote this famous libel against Justinian, which is called in English, The Secret History. Mm. And in this, he tells all the scurrilous stories that must have been circulating in Constantinople, about, um, particularly about Theodora. And it, it brings in lots of stereotypes. You know, this is, this is how we know that you know, she was allegedly a, a, an, an actress. She may have been a prostitute. You know, she came from the lowest social class. We just don't know, was, you know, was this actually really rather crass sort of male male chauvinism uh, by someone who was trying to get at Justinian. Uh, she was dead by the time he wrote all this. Um, or was it all true? Um, there's probably some truth in it. Uh, there, are, there are wonderful mosaics that you can still see in the Italian city of Ravenna, where on one side of the wall you can see in gilded mosaic, coloured mosaics, you can see Justinian, the emperor, and the bishops of his retinue, and facing them on the other side, you see Theodora with her with her ladies, and there are fountains playing. They're all wearing beautiful clothes and jewelry. It's all very opulent. She's a grand lady. So you know, was she this these scurrilous things that we're told? It's you know, we we just don't know. It's a fascinating conundrum. Mm. And of course, we have to move on as well. We've got a lot of history to cover, and if we go to cover and, until 2023 in one episode. And I mentioned, because this is really significant to Byzantine history as well, and that is the birth of Islam. But before, something I'm a little bit curious about is how come they kind of, was there no intention in, in, in Christianizing the Arabian Peninsula, the... You know the, the Middle East. How 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 did the what 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 why did they send in did they send in missionaries there? The, but the the fed what was how they come they did not try to Christianize the Middle East. Uh, well, I mean, in many ways they did Christianize the mm. Middle East. I mean, um, I mean, you know, the... the you know as far as the Roman Empire went, yeah. which by this time was at least as far as the. Um, 
uh, well, it varied, but as far as the the River Euphrates and all of all of Egypt down to the the Red Sea to the almost to the Arabian to the Persian Gulf, mm. um, and very far east and further north as well into into Armenia and Georgia, all these lands were Christian, but nobody paid much attention to Arabia. I mean, the Arabia. In, that's I just forgot the name of the peninsula. Right. So, yeah. I mean, the, you know, the in Latin they called it Arabia Deserta. Because, well, what was it? Indeed, what it is today, it was desert. And in those days, of course, there were no, you know, there were no oil wells or no, nobody knew what to do with oil if you did find it. So the people who lived there, there weren't all that many of them. The the Romans, uh, as they tended to do with those they called barbarians across the frontier, they would often conscript them as mercenaries. They would hire them to do their fighting for them. And um, and very often, you know, across many of these frontiers, Christianity spread spontaneously. There were Christians in Persia. There were Christians further east in Asia. Um, by the seventh century, there were Christians even as far as Western China. So the you know the religion was spreading partly through Roman official efforts, but also just because um, people were spontaneously uh, converting to Christianity, um, and all the other in inverted commas, barbarian peoples who invaded the Roman Empire, who entered the Roman Empire and in the West who took it over, all of them converted to Christianity. Right. So, you know, they they overturned the secular system of the empire, but they created a Christian world which became medieval Europe and eventually Europe as we know it today. Why didn't that happen in Arabia? Well, you know, that's history, or if you take a religious view, perhaps it, divine intervention is involved. But of course, it is part of the Islamic faith, hmm. the belief that um, God spoke to the prophet Prophet Muhammad through his angel Gabriel. And the, the, the religious teaching hmm. that came to, uh, to the Arabs through Muhammad was... It was monotheistic, like the Jewish religion and like Christianity, but it was quite distinctively different. And it was based on this very, if you like, fundamentally, this very simple premise that there is simply one God. And, you know, I suspect, you know, who are we to say, but for people who had been been bemused for years by arguments about the Christian Trinity, you know, people had to hold the emperor called church councils, Uh, bishops debated uh, the precise relation between God the Father, God the Son and the Holy Spirit in the Christian religion. So Christianity is a monotheistic religion but central to it also is this more complex idea of what is called in Christianity the Trinity. So, you know, is it, in a way, is it truly monotheistic? If you take a a kind of straightforward monotheistic you view that there can only be the one God. You know, you're just a bit lost in all this argument about mm. God the Son and God the Father. Islam cut through that. Mm. And it seems that a lot of Christians in that part of the Roman Empire were mm. really kind of fed up with these debates about the nature of Christ and the Father. Mm. They wanted straightforward monotheism. They could just, you know, the Islamic premise was something they could, they, they warmed to. And lots and lots of people converted very quickly, not to Christianity anymore, but to Islam. And from that time on, the two great monotheistic religions of the world, as they quickly became, Christianity and Islam, basically, you know, fought for 
influence over people's souls and their, you know, their earthly existence. Right, and I think this is an important quote as well to mention in the podcast because we will talk about this, of course, as well later on. But there, there is this famous story of one general who says to Muhammad that you, you sir, are the greatest general of them all, you know, but Muhammad says back to him that no, the one that conquers Constantinople, the apple of the world, I believe, as the Muslims looked at it, that will be the greatest conqueror, the greatest general of them all. Yes, I mean, I think like, you know, like many of the like many of the sayings attributed to Muhammad that are not actually in the Quran, there's some doubt about you know whether he actually said mm. it or you know who might have said it or right. when. But it's you're absolutely right that um, for many centuries it was part of the object of the the caliphs, the the rulers who followed in the tradition uh, in the footsteps of Muhammad and promoted and fought for the Islamic faith. Um, it was the kind of key achievement was to conquer what they called Rome, based, of course, on the old name of Rome, the Roman Empire. And during the um, the seventh and eighth centuries, there were there were three uh, there were three serious attempts to conquer Constantinople, and each one of them failed. It was very close. It was close run. Uh, the Arabs, uh, mm. Muslim fleets, and uh, land soldiers arrived mm. in the Bosphorus. They set they laid siege to Constantinople. Mm. But at the end of three sieges, um, they were finally forced to uh, to give up, and uh, and therefore a kind of boundary was set between Islam and Christianity further east than Constantinople. And one of the reasons why it was so easy for the for the Arabs to conquer the Byzantine territory because they had at the time internal struggles as well, right? They were full, filled with civil wars and internal strifes and issues. That made it easy for the Arabs to conquer the Byzantine lands, if I'm correct. Well, for yes, I mean, for once, actually, they weren't so much fighting among themselves. Mm. They've been fighting against the arch enemies for many hundreds of years, the Persians. And the um, the last war between the Romans of Constantinople and the Persian Empire, on based on the Tigris, um, was fought between six o. Two and six twenty-eight, and at one stage the Persians laid siege to Constantinople, but then the tide of war swept the other way. The Emperor Heraclius actually conquered Persia, and the the last Persian king of kings um, was deposed and murdered by his own people. Um, and it looked as though even you know the great rival Persia was going to become Christian, and the Roman Empire had finally. Uh, you know, taken over the whole of the Middle East. But what turned out to be the case instead was that both the Persian Empire and the Roman Empire, based on Constantinople, had so exhausted themselves with this titanic struggle that they were, you know, their cities were desolate, their armies were exhausted, many of their people had been killed. They were ready, you know, they were ripe to be taken over by a new, an entirely new force, which was these actually quite, you know, originally quite small armies arriving out of the Arabian desert, and then they recruited many more people from the lands they, they conquered to become, within just a few decades, a really powerful world empire in their own right, the uh, the first caliphate based on Damascus. And 
I, I remember when you talked about Persia, you write, I believe, I believe, I believe you write about, uh, there are some scholars that feel neglected in the Byzantine world, and they hope for, heard that there was more freedom, and they, they were allowed to do what, what they wanted in the Persian Empire, so they traveled to the Persians, if I remember, remember, remember this right, they, but they were, of course, disappointed to find out that that was not the case. That was not the answer either. No, there yeah. is a famous there is a famous story about uh, Justinian, whom I was talking about a little while ago. Um, is um, I mean, I was saying you know he he was the first who really formally imposed Christianity as the religion of all the empire. And one of the things he did was to close down the schools of philosophy in Athens. That was in five two nine. So that when the um, and some of the philosophers there was you know they're obviously rather rather um, disappointed at being forced to shut up shop. So they actually, you know, they got on a ship, they sailed to Persia, but uh, obviously life wasn't much better for them in Persia. So classical Greek philosophy uh, really came to an end at that point. And of course, like I said, we have to move on, unfortunately. And then she talked about Justinian and this era for ages. But uh, there's someone I wanted, another Justinian we would have to talk about, and we made an episode about him a while ago, actually, as well. But that is, of course, the Justinian II, the infamous emperor who lost his nose. So let's let's talk about yes. Justinian II for a while. Uh, well, he's a much less well-known emperor. I, mean, I suppose there is the most. I suppose the most the best known thing about him is his alleged gold golden nose, his prosthetic nose, because he was very unusual. He was emperor twice, mm. um, and he was deposed twice, and the first time. You have deposed... to be a shit emperor if you are disposed twice. Sorry, how can you? Yeah, you have to be kind of a shitty emperor if you are disposed twice. Well, well, you could say that. On the other hand, you have to be a pretty determined emperor to mm. come back having been dis- deposed. Right. The, the first time they deposed him, they cut off his nose and they slit his tongue. So he's not in the best condition to be an emperor. But a few years after these atrocities had been committed against him, he duly came back with his famous golden nose, and proceeded to do equally horrible things to his enemies. Um, So at the end of his second reign, in, I think, 711, they they killed him for good. But they certainly didn't, they certainly, you know, he was, he was a, he was a man who made a lot of, uh, made a lot of enemies. He was not very effective. He was ruling at a time when Constantinople was under threat from the uh, from the Arabic uh, Arab Muslim armies from the east, and he you know he tried as all these emperors did to pull it all together, but uh, as we were saying, he had an awful lot of enemies at home. Hmm. Do, do you think that we spoke, and we spoke briefly about this in our episode about Justinian the Second when he. When he made it as well, that he was named Justinian II after Justinian the First because he had kind of high his father had kind of high expectations of him. But do you think that any other emperor would have done fared much better at the time? Like you said, there was a lot of struggles in the empire and the, with the Arab threats and more. Do you think mm-hmm. any other emperor would have fared better at the time if there was any other rude leader at? Of the empire, yeah. I mean, just in the. I mean, you're right. I mean, people had high hopes of him, and um, you know, the whole idea of calling him Justinian the Second. He was, you know, he was going to be a second Justinian. He was going to reconquer all these lands, 
Um, but, I mean, your question really takes us to one of these big questions of history. You know, is it is it the sort of great man view of history? Are mm. there individuals who really manage to change history through their own individual personality? Or mm. are there situations where it doesn't matter how great a man you are, if history is moving in that direction, there's actually very little you could do about it. And at that particular juncture, I'm really not, I'm really not sure. Um, I mean, I don't think any of the emperors after Heraclius really uh, is particularly distinguished um, until Leo III. And he was, he was the, again, another army general who was made emperor just in time to organize the defense of Constantinople in 717. And he succeeded. And then he reigned for another 30 years. So in a very difficult, unpropitious time, Leo III did about as much as it was possible for anyone to do. But I wouldn't, you know, he doesn't really go down in history as one of the great emperors. No. But maybe if he'd lived in a different time, he would have been able to do things that would have earned him that kind of reputation. Because it, his, the Heraclean dynasty does end with Justinian II and it's quite a brutal, quite a brutal end to the dynasty, even Justinian's son as well. And I, I want to mention this mm. as well because during his Ectan exile, which is 10 years in exile, he does marry, I think, believe, a bolder woman. And a fun fact as well, he named her Theodora. There's, nobody knows what she was named before mm, that, but yeah. he does name his wife Theodora, but both his son is brutally killed as well at the end of Heraclean, oh, sorry, end of it's the end Justinian of the II. Yes, yes. I mean, again, you know, by and large, dynasties don't tend to last, mm. either in the, in the, you know, the old Roman Empire, or in the Byzantine, and neither the Romans nor the Byzantine ever really established uh, a regular system for choosing an emperor. Mm. It was it was a kind of hybrid. There's a kind of, you know, it's partly dynastic, but it's also partly by you know by choice. And there was you know there there was never really a formally established uh, system. So that succession was endlessly right throughout for more than a thousand years. Succession was contested, and. Uh, often emperors, you know, they would, if they particularly short-lived emperors, they left no dynasty at all. And even when they did, I mean, the, you know, the famous Macedonian dynasty in the middle Byzantine period, um, <clears throat> it wasn't father to son. And people, they were still, you know, they were still plotting and killing each other within the same, you know, the same extended, um, the same extended family. Right. Which, of course, brings us to something we had to mention in the Byzantine history, which is the icon infamous iconoclasm era because there were mm. two more or less two iconoclasm but what was iconoclasm and how how did it have become such a popular popular feat in in the empire an endless amount of scholarship and uh, speculation and research has gone into this it's a fascinating question the whole idea that you know the idea of breaking images, which is what iconoclasm literally mm. means, it's something that reappears from time to time in human history. And so there's a kind of theoretical or principle question, you know, why is it that in certain situations, people feel that the images that they've treasured for so long 
suddenly uh, are no longer appropriate or they turn against them. Um, but the, I mean, the short answer to your question is that after the Islamic conquest, after the loss of all of the Eastern Empire in the Middle East and North Africa, after the near loss of Constantinople itself, when it seemed as though the empire could actually be extinguished, the emperors and the senior clergy during the century after these traumatic and terrifying events really had to reinvent their state from the ground up. And they, um, you know, they, they reorganized the army, they had to devise new systems of taxation because they've got far less revenue. And it was a time to take stock of the religious practices as well, not the religious beliefs, obviously, this is the, these are, it's Orthodox Christianity. And, and what seems to have happened is that it obviously, you know, it obviously struck people very forcibly that by the end of the, um, or by the time of the siege of Constantinople, the uh, the caliphate, the, the, the Muslim enemies had banned religious images um in the in the in the mosque it didn't happen to begin with but it happened very soon afterwards and if you saw your enemy seemingly you know winning favor with god and they don't you know their mosque is absolutely bare of ornament so all the imagery is abstract maybe people's people churchmen began to say well could it be because we we have all all these pictures in our churches we have pictures of god the father and the virgin mary and the saints and the uh the figures from the old testament our churches are covered in these human figures and you know when we pray these figures are there and they said well maybe this is maybe this breaks a very fundamental rule laid down in the old testament by the god of the jews to moses thou shalt not worship graven images mm. Right, so, and I want to bring you up this because yeah. we made, a, made an episode about Byzantine art with Robin Cormack a while, while ago, and I mentioned to him as well when, uh, <clears throat> you know, in Eastern Orthodoxy, they they do, do kind of worship, more or less worship image, images, right, of saints, they, saints, and it's kind of, they kiss the images, you know, and to me, it's kind of, in a way, sense a form of paganism, wouldn't you agree? And that is so. That's what they discussed during during the iconoclasm era as well. Would Would you agree that it's kind of a form of paganism? Well, I mean, I'm interested. You mentioned you mentioned Robert Cormack, who is a very fine scholar, and I've learned a great oh. deal from him myself. And um, one of and one of the things I have learned from he's, he's got a marvelous book called Writing in Gold, which um, you know goes through all of this, right? But um, which I actually I hadn't I hadn't realised before that a lot of the you know, the present day um, Orthodox practice actually isn't original early Christian practice at all. It actually mm. arose out of the iconoclast controversy mm. because it was at the time when the Byzantines finally reversed iconoclasm and they said you know the final decision was actually it's perfectly all right to have images in our churches. And the justification was they said, you know, we always did. But but Robin and some other scholars, I mean, have actually demonstrated that there were far more images and far more attention was paid to them after iconoclasm than there ever was before. So that actually this was something quite new. In a way, going back to what I was saying earlier, 
iconoclasm began as a reaction to Islam. They've got no images. It looks as though God favors them. So perhaps we, you know, perhaps we're sinning by having images. So let's get rid of the images. So the images go, and then, well, you still don't win all the victories. And there are all kinds of reasons, you know, based on tradition and belief and so on, why actually, you know, what what's wrong with images after all? Right. So they bring them back. And the final conclusion, after almost 100 years, or more than 100 years, was not only will we bring the images back, but actually we will, they, they clarified it in theological terms, we do not worship these images, mm. they're not idols that we worship, which would be against New Test Old Testament mm. teaching, but we venerate them. Right. Which is a very subtle point because it's more or less the same thing. You know, you can kiss them, you can pray in their presence, but you're not actually worshipping the image as though it was the God, God it was God himself or the saint who's represented. Mm. You venerate the images. Mm. And therefore, um icons, the paintings and portable images play became absolutely central in the Orthodox, uh, in the Orthodox tradition. And I think it's still, in a way, it's a response to Islam. Instead of mm. saying, well, actually, we don't, we'll, we'll follow Islam, um, they're saying, actually, we'll be as different from Islam as we possibly can. They've got no images. We'll cover our churches with images, with images everywhere. And as Christians, we believe that this is pleasing to God. And that's mm. really remained the orthodox position ever since. Mm. And of course, they had to move on as well. And next brings us to the infamous Crusades, of course, which is um, is a, an episode in itself. So let's talk briefly about the three or four Crusades that happens in Constantinople and the reason why. The reason why? Well, there the reason. Okay, reasons oh. for the Crusades. <laughs> I mean, it's a fascinating development, and it's got something to do with the the rise in Western Europe of the the central role of the of the Pope as the uh, as the figure as a regulating the practice and the belief of Christians throughout um, uh, throughout the whole of Western uh, Western Europe. It's also got to do with the fact that Western Europeans go on pilgrimages to the Holy Lands, and the immediate catalyst or the immediate cause of the Crusades, I think um, most people would probably agree, is that it's the uh, the dissolution of the Abbasid, Abbasid Caliphate mm. in Baghdad and the arrival of the Seljuk Turks. This is a group of Turks who is not the direct mm. origin of uh, today's Turks of Turkey, but it's a, it's a, th these are Turkish, Turkic speaking people um, who uh, rapidly took over both the holy places and a large part of Anatolia. So the emperor Alexius I in Constantinople was fighting once again in on his eastern front in today's Turkey to hold back the Seljuk Turks. And now, now before the Alexius, yes. of course, you had the famous battle of Manzijak, which is a lot big loss to the Byzantines. That's right. That's the first that's the first significant arrival of the Seljuk Turks. The year is the year is 1071. And the Byzantine armies face a, a devastating, a devastating loss, and the, even the emperor was taken, taken prisoner by the Sultan of the uh, of the Turks, and that meant that a large part of eastern, central Anatolia was lost to the uh, to the Byzantines. Um, ten years later, in ten eighty one, the emperor Alexius I mm. uh, came to the throne, 
And he was the uh, the, the military man, uh, he's a former army commander, who really took charge of the fight back against the soldiers in Anatolia. Mm. And he lit upon the idea of calling for military support from Western Europe in order to push back the Seljuk Turks. Um, <clears throat> if you're if you're the emperor in Constantinople, you know where do you send your emissaries? Who's the person? Who do you talk to in Western Europe at the time? The answer is the Pope, because there's no real you know there's no emperor in the West, or there is, but he doesn't count in quite the same way. You go to the Pope, and so um, Alexis appealed to Pope Urban II, and the Pope connected this appeal from Constantinople with his own concerns about the uh, the difficulties that Western pilgrims were having in making pilgrimages, pilgrimages, pilgrimages to Jerusalem. And he hit upon this idea of preaching a military, a spontaneous military expedition to, as he put it, liberal, as he conceived it, to liberate the Holy Land, mm. you then have two parallel agendas which only only converge so far. They're basically in parallel and they don't really meet. Alexius wants military support in winning back Anatolia. Urban, the Pope, doesn't particularly care about Anatolia, but he mm. does have this idea of inspiring his Christian flock in the West mm. by winning back the Holy Land. And so an expedition sets off. They have to travel via Constantinople. They cause enormous problems for the Byzantine emperor, who I think deeply regrets ever having uh, asked them in. But against all expectation, this first crusade, as it became known, was successful. So that um, in 1099, Jerusalem was, uh, was conquered by the crusaders, and they proceeded to set up uh, a series of small states on the uh, the eastern Mediterranean coast of what we now call the uh, the Middle East. No, it's worth mentioning as well that it, Jerusalem wasn't part of been that important considering. And we talked about this in our episode about Alexis Comnenus in with Anthony Candelis, where he said we meant, talked about that Jerusalem was lost almost eighty eighty hundred years before the crusade, so it can't have been that. Of course, it was significant at the time. That's what the crusade was all about. But it, it's surprising that they didn't care about this until almost 80 years after its conquest that it, they lost Jerusalem. Well, I mean, the Byzant again, the Byzantines didn't particularly care about Jerusalem. They had been reconciled for some time to the fact that they were not going to get those lands back. Mm. Um, Alexius was fighting a defensive war. Um, <clears throat> to defend what was really the heartland of the Greek-speaking um, Byzantine uh, Empire in uh, in Anatolia, so I mean, <clears throat> in a way, you've got two you know major power brokers, each trying to harness the other mm. to his own ends. The Byzantine Emperor it wants military support against the uh, is the against the military power of the Seljuk Turks. Uh, Urban the Pope is looking to harness Byzantine support in his bid to reconquer the Holy Land. Um, and storing up trouble for later, the Pope clearly also has an agenda 
of trying to extend the influence or the, the role of the papacy to include the Eastern Orthodox uh, part of Christianity uh, as well. The, the, there's always this idea of reunifying the Christian church, the Catholic and the Orthodox, or mm. Western and uh, and Eastern. And so it begins as a potential conversion. The East and West could have or set out to fight together for compatible goals. But in the end, their goals became incompatible. And uh, by the time of the, you were talking about the First Crusade, but a hundred years after that, by the time of the Fourth Crusade, it turns out actually to be the, the Western Crusaders fighting against the Eastern Christian. Mm. So a lot, what, of course, I mean, we can't go through all the Crusades, so I'm afraid, but then we have the Second Crusade, of course, and then the Third Crusade with King Arthur, um, the Sanadin again, and then... Okay. Richard the Lionheart. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So Richard, not King Arthur, Richard the Lionheart, my bad. And uh, then we do have the, four, the famous Fourth Crusade, which... Why did they turn against Constantinople when they did they was that the intention from the start that they were going to go to Constantinople and take it take over the city itself or no it's a sordid story about money mm. um uh, a large part of that is played by the Venetians who were much more interested in trading than in crusading but mm. they were providing the ships that were going to take the Crusaders to the Holy Land, and the Crusaders wanted wanted paying. The Venetians, uh, the Crusade, the Venetians wanted paying, right? And the Crusaders didn't have enough money, so they had to raise the money along the way. And at this time, uh, Constantinople, uh, the em- the empire, simply, um, fatally played into the Crusaders' hands during the fifteen years before the Fourth Crusade reached reached Constantinople, the the empire spectacularly imploded. Emperors came and went, they deposed one another, Uh, regional generals tried to set up on their own account and break away from the centre. The whole, somehow, the whole Byzantine system that had lasted for hundreds of years began just to fall apart, and nobody really understands why. The, the last of the three great emperors of the Comnenian dynasty, Manuel I, died in 1180. And somehow everything just fell apart after that. Mm. So uh, one different, uh, uh, they were constantly, constantly deposing one another. One candidate for the throne uh, went to the crusaders and said, well, I'll give you the money you need for your crusade if you'll, take me, if you'll give me back my throne. So that was the perfect the perfect pretext for the Venetians and the Crusaders together to divert from the Holy Land, pitch pitch camp opposite Constantinople, and the the plan was always well, we'll put this guy back on this on his throne. He gets his throne. We get our money. We'll wash our hands of this. We'll get on, get off to Egypt and fight fight the rest of our crusade. And this inexperienced young lad. You know, he got his throne back, and nobody wanted him, for one thing. And then he decided. He, then he double crossed the Crusaders. He said, "Well, actually, you know, now that I've got my throne back, you know, go away. I do. You know, yeah. I, I don't want to pay you." He, as far as we can tell, he could have. The money was there, but um, the this you know this really really annoyed the Venetians and the Crusaders. 
And so, I mean, there are different different historians take different views of this, but the way I see it, it was actually very much at the last minute. Their patience had been exhausted. They'd been double-crossed. They'd been diverted from their goal. Um, they were, you know, within, you know, literally striking distance, just a few, you know, just across the water yeah. from the richest city in the world. And they just couldn't resist it. They thought, well, okay, we'll we'll just go and we'll, we'll take what's our due. And they did. It was the first. It was the first time that the massive Theodosian walls that we talked about earlier, which at that time were eight hundred years old, it was the first time they were breached by an enemy. But the Venetians rowed their ship. They rowed their ships up against the walls, yeah. and they put siege engines on the decks of the ships. Soldiers climbed up on the top of the siege engine. They jumped across onto the walls. It's spectacular, you know, yeah. feat of engineering and daring. And of course, once they got in there. They trashed the place, uh, and having done it, they were a little bit ashamed of a little bit ashamed of themselves too, because it was a Christian city they trashed. Right. Um, the crusade collapsed. Everybody went home with the spoils they'd taken, and uh, the Pope who'd instigated the crusade in the first place um, was a little bit annoyed with them. But it was a fait accompli, and that basically destroyed the power of the Greek-speaking Christian empire of Constantinople forever. And of course, this is the start of the end of the empire, as many historians consider this the beginning of the fall of the great Byzantine empire. But there's one formidable foe. We mentioned the Seljuk Turks, and they would eventually fall as well. But there is one formidable foe that started to rise to power, and that is, of course, the Ottomans, which will be a significant Cross to the end and later in of the Byzantine Empire. They certainly were. I mean, again, there were different, you know, there were waves of different uh, uh, power groups, warriors, elites that entered Anatolia at different times. And each of them set up, you know, really quite small kingdoms uh, to begin with. Um, I mean, one of the, again, one of the ironies of history was that um, by the 13th century, uh, not long after the fall of Constantinople to the Western Crusaders, the Seljuk Empire had itself collapsed. This, if the if the Byzantine Empire had remained intact, it would have had every opportunity to reconquer um, yeah. a lot of you know of its heartland of Anatolia. But in fact, weakened as it was, I mean, it was a, something of a miracle it survived at all. But greatly reduced with um, having lost lands and revenues. Um, it was in no position to do that. So for a couple of hundred years, there was um, a fair degree of anarchy in what is now Turkey. Uh, the Seljuks um, were replaced by various uh, groups of Turkic-speaking Muslims, um, of whom the most powerful turned out to be the sons of Osman, um, From and it's from from him that we get the name Osmanli or Ottoman. The, the, so the Ottoman Empire was not formed by a guy called Otto. It was not formed by a guy called Otto. No, he was called Osman. Um, I'm not quite sure how it came to be Ottoman. could be called Ottoman, but yeah. Ottoman or Othman with a TH, mm. uh, as how it was, it was called in, uh, in in Europe at the time. But yes, it was the, the dynasty created by Osman mm. in one very small city-state on the Sea of Marmara. This was the one that actually grew to power to overcome the other small um, 
small sultanates in the uh, in the in the region, and in the year 1352, the first um, Turkish Ottoman mercenaries were shipped across the straits into Europe to fight as mercenaries for the Byzantine Emperor. And after they'd done that, they refused to go home. And that's actually the beginning. 1354 is the first Ottoman-Turkish settlement at Gallipoli in Europe. Mm. And from that time on, Ottoman power began to expand into Europe at the expense of uh, what was left of the uh, Byzantine Empire, of course, as also of the Christian kingdoms of Mm. Bulgaria, Serbia and Hungary. So let's talk about the fall, because there are like several, a few attempts, and most of them failed. Though some could have been successful, uh, I believe Murad the Second could have been successful. Was that Murad the Second who was the fa- father of Mehmed, if I'm correct? Uh, I think uh, Murad Murad the Second. Yes. yes. So uh, he he did try to siege the siege Constantinople as well, but he failed because he had some other mm. issues to attend, but if that had not happened, it mm. could have succeeded in taking Constantinople. But... Yeah, it could have happened much earlier. I mean, there was another siege in thirteen at the end of the 1390s, from 1396 to about 1400, 1401, and uh, the Sultan mm. um probably would have taken Constantinople, or could well, had he not, had he not been attacked from, from on right. the other side um, by, by the Mongols. Mm. So that gave Constantinople a breathing space. Hmm. But, but of course... The... Right, sorry, yeah. No, it was the very young Mehmed II hmm. um, who actually became the conqueror, Fatih, as he's called in Turkish, hmm. uh, ever since. <clears throat> when he began the, uh, prepared for the siege in 1452, uh, brought up his um, enormous cannon in 1450, the, the early spring of 1453, and finally it was the relatively new invention of gunpowder and cannon that were able to breach the walls that had been built on the uh, for the Emperor Theodosius um, almost exactly 1,000 years before. Hmm. And let, yeah, let's talk about Greece, because now it had switched from Byzantine, of course, they reached, which is why you talked a lot about them in your book here. But let's talk about Greece... Yeah, because they do conquer the Greece Peninsula as well. So let's talk, and we, again, I keep referring to older episodes, but we did a two-part series as well on the Ottomans, and he, the the host there, or, or guests there, talked about that the Greeks, they are not very favourable to the, the Ottomans as, as their en- old enemy, and kind of still are, to us Turkey. But they talked about how they were killing everyone. But no, that cannot be the case, he argues, because if the if the Ottomans did kill every Greek, there they wouldn't be any left. But let's talk about Greece under Ottoman <clears throat> rule. Yeah, well, I mean, in a way, Greece, I mean, what we what we now call, you know, what we now mean by Greece is, um, you know, it's actually it's it's only one it's only one part of the what was then the Ottoman Empire. Mm. In Europe, it's also only one part of the you know, the wider Greek-speaking world, and in, in a way, my you know my book is focused um, not just on the geographical space right. that we call Greece, but on on the populations, the people who spoke Greek, who were at that time much more widely widely dispersed. <clears throat> so, the almost almost all Greeks um, after fourteen fifty three 
um, Greek speakers, wherever they live, are subjects of the Ottoman Empire. But the Ottomans, um, it's a Muslim empire, um, it's a theocratic empire, uh, Muslims have privileges and the non-Muslim populations are subjected to uh, various forms of taxation, there are limitations on what they can do, how they dress, um, how they can behave. But there was no uh, systematic attempt either to convert them to Islam or to, you know, to, exp to expel or still less to exterminate them. And I mean, I make the comparison, the contrast in my in my book mm. between what happened in the 15th century when the Ottomans conquered the European Balkans, the Christian Balkans, and what happened at the other end of Europe when the uh, the Spanish Reconquista, the reconquest from Muslim Spain, mm. you know, completed the Christianization of uh, Spain and Portugal, because in the West. You have the Inquisition, you have the formal expulsion of all Jews from uh, uh, Aragon and Castile, from modern Spain, in 1492. You have the forcible conversion, expulsion, and uh, often systematic torture of Muslims by the Inquisition, with the result that, you know, today there are, well, today, I mean, 100 years ago, there were no Muslims and no, no, Jew, no Jews um, in, in Spain. Um, the contrast in the Ottoman Empire you know, couldn't have been greater. Yeah. There was nothing, I mean, you know, the Greek speakers, they were Christians, they were a subject people, they were in a subordinate position, but they were also, within that, they were, you know, well, it could have been very much worse for them, is what, I, yeah. what, I'm, what I'm saying. Um, it's not to say that the Ottomans were necessarily especially tolerant in a modern, uh, in a modern sense, there was nothing particularly benign about this, right. but from the you know from the point of view of the ottoman empire they really i mean the in a way you could say that the christian population is more used more used to them paying taxes than dead and, and, it, and then you mentioned the jews in castile and in spain and you i wanted and when they were expulsed from spain where did they go they went they to went, the ottoman they ottoman went to empire. the ottoman Empire. They went to the Ottoman Empire, where almost in well, where invariably they were much, they were much more, uh, they, they were much better tolerated. More, um, mm. uh, they were treated much more. Again, they were sub, they were a subject people, a second class people, but they were, um, they were not, they were, they were, I think, never systematically persecuted in the Ottoman Empire. Um, <clears throat> they had difficulties in modern Turkey at various times, but and again, one of history's little ironies. Um, one of the largest Jewish communities ended up in the city of Thessaloniki, Salonika, right. um, which in the twentieth by the in the twentieth century actually was more a Jewish city than 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 anything else. The Jews mm. were actually the largest, uh, you know, section of that population of that multicultural city. And I mean, a lot of people like to love to hate on the Ottomans, especially for the Armenian genocide, which. It's like, which of course is a tragedy and one of the worst things the Ottomans have done. But there, but like, the British Empire done far worse than the Ottomans. But they, compared to living in the time, the Ottomans weren't as bad as people make make them out to be. If you as in my in, from my point of view, they they did they aren't any worse than any other empires at the time. 
Yeah, I mean, I don't, you know, I don't want to get into comparative atrocities. Right. And, uh, you know, the, no, I mean, no, but I'm, I'm just saying that the artists no, are as um, many people make yeah, them out to be. Yeah. No, sure. No, I mean, I mean, you know, I mean, there are, there are, you know, there are some, there are some appalling stories of, mm -hmm. um, you know, Ottoman cruelty, and certainly when you know you came to it when there were rebellions or when they, during the Greek when the the Greeks finally re <clears throat> revolted in the 1820s. Right. Um, and there were, you know, it is the systematic reprisals against uh, against those who rose up against the, the Ottoman Empire. Well, you know, they were they were truly horrific. Um, on the other hand, you know, it was a no hold no holds barred contest. It was kill or be killed, and um, from the Ottoman point of view, these were subject peoples who were rebelling. And basically, they forfeited they forfeited such rights as they had by the act of uh, of rebellion. But as I say, I mean, I, you know, I think that contrast between the Inquisition and the expulsions in Spain and the Muslim and uh, the and the Ottoman uh, it's not even assimilation, but co option of the Christian of, of the Christian the Christian subjects is is a very it's a very it's a very striking one. So let's talk about the the, the Greek rebellion and find their mm. attempt for independence, and because it's quite a long struggle, and they do get a lot of support from the West, but also the Ottomans do get support from as well from the recently established Mehmed Ali. So let's talk about for a while the struggle for final independence of Greece. Well, this begins in eighteen twenty one. And it's in the context of, I mean, it's often what's often called the age of revolution, because first of all, in the Americas and then in France, <coughs> peoples have been rising up against their rulers, um, particularly, you know, in, particularly imperial, uh, imperial rulers. Um, it's also the time of the Enlightenment when values and ideas that go back to classical Greece and Rome are being very actively discussed. Again, people are rediscovering the principles of political self-determination, of democracy. And uh, many Greeks, um, because the Greeks are very active in trade, they're moving between the Ottoman Empire and Western and Northern Europe and Russia. Um, they're becoming aware of these uh, these ideas. So that the idea of liberal of lib you know the liberal idea of emancipation, fighting for self-determination, actually creating um, a self-governing yeah. state for the Greeks. This really garners momentum, and it suddenly explodes in 1821, um, rather unexpectedly on the on the very core, on the very edge of uh, the edge of Europe. And it's a time of some considerable instability in the Ottoman Empire as well. And actually, the Ottoman Empire um, rather um, you know it it rather re regroups after this loss and becomes stronger again later in the 19th century. But during the 1820s it was weak and the, the Greeks took advantage of that. And the Europe the well the European powers, particularly the powers that had navies, had uh you know armed force in the Mediterranean, which is Britain, France and Russia at that time, these powers all took a great interest in what was happening because they were afraid that if Ottoman power weakened, or if the Ottomans lost control of the southeast corner of Europe, um, you know what would happen then? 
it's called in history the Eastern question, you know, what happens after the Ottomans. So there was a kind of, you know, there was self-interest by governments, but there was also a passionate, spontaneous interest among, you know, people throughout Europe and even as far away as America. Here was an oppressed people fighting for, you know, ideas and values that were very deeply held and supported by certainly by you know progressive people in those days didn't they didn't they deserve support and that meant and as a result you know volunteers went to actually to go and fight with the greeks it was something unheard of nobody ever took up arms voluntarily to fight you know you're not fighting for your own home your own fatherland you're fighting for somebody else's and you're not doing it as a mercenary for pay either you're doing it because you believe in it and you know, the most famous of all these volunteers, of course, is Lord Byron, who died in Greece, um, active on behalf of the Greek uh, War of Independence. But there were about a thousand of these people who, you know, actually fought, many of them died. Um, and they really, had, this had an enormous effect on public opinion, which in turn was articulated in the press. Come 1827, the three powers felt that the they they had to intervene and they they sent a joint naval force into the eastern mediterranean with rather strange orders to enforce peace mm. you know impose peace by force right how do you how do you do that well it's a famous story the <clears throat> uh the ottomans were fighting back with the help of a fleet which came from egypt you mentioned uh mehmed ali who was the uh, the Sultan's vassal in Egypt. He sent his son Ibrahim in charge of a naval force, which basically reconquered the greater part of Greece. Greece was close to being extinguished by the summer of 1827. But mm. the squadron turns up, the three Allied fleets, and they throw up outside the Bay of Navarino in southwest Greece, where the Ottoman navy and the Egyptian navy are. Uh, drawn up for the winter and they sail into the bay and nobody quite knows what happened after that because their orders are to keep the peace but how do you keep the peace by force um and the ottomans uh said they weren't going to they weren't going to be hemmed in in the bay they tried to sail out shots were fired it turned into a huge naval battle and the ottoman and egyptian fleets were all but destroyed that mm. meant the great powers had willy-nilly intervened in a contest which they somehow needed to see through. And the upshot of that was that a few years later, Greece was recognized by the great powers and the Sultan in Constantinople was obliged really to uh, sign on the dotted line to accept that Greece would become legally a fully sovereign independent yeah. country. Uh, this is the first time they really were at country and united country because as we mentioned in the last episode, they weren't <laughs> They were more than city-states back in ancient Greece and in Byzantines, they were ruled from Constantinople. But why did they choose to have a monarchy? And what was the reason for this, having a monarchy in well, Greece? Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, to be fair, the Greeks didn't choose a monarchy. Mm. Uh, that was basically one of the conditions for the support that after the Battle of Navarino, right. they, um, you know, they really, uh, they had got and weren't, going, weren't prepared to risk. Um, no, the um, the I mean the the initiators of the revolution drew up actually not one but three 
provisional constitutions, which were really quite, uh, you know, quite advanced for their time. They were based on the Constitution of the United States of America and on uh, several successive revolutionary constitutions that had been drawn up in France, but of course had then disappeared from France after the defeat of Napoleon. So they were quite advanced. They were Republican. But the great powers who were supporting Greece after Navarino said, no, you know, you can be a nation state, you could be a new state in Europe, but every European state has to have a monarch, so you'll have one too. Yeah. Um, the Greeks basically said, okay, you know, it's um, we'll, we'll, settle, we'll settle for that. And actually, the Greeks themselves, seemed, they didn't particularly want one of their own to be king, because there were so many different sort of power struggles, there were so many different... Mm angles to the people who fought for for um for um you know for their freedom they didn't they were actually they actually preferred the king to be an outsider so it was left to the great powers to choose the king which the which they duly did um and their first choice was the man who actually became the um, the king of belgium uh, leopold saxe coburg and their second choice was um prince otto of bavaria who became the first king of Greece as Otto um, when he arrived in Greece in 1833 at oh. the end of, and that really marks the end of the Greek revolution or Greek war of independence. Now, unfortunately, we don't have much time, so we have to kind of rush a little bit as well, but we have to talk about the Balkan wars, of course. So, so how, what was Greece Rome? Because it do ally with, uh, let me see here, with the, the with the the do and they go against the Ottoman Empire. So, but what? How great is Greece's military force at this time? Well, in the nineteenth century, Greece is a very small. It's a very new country. It's a very small country, on the edge of on the edge of Europe. Um, and it's dwarfed by the Ottoman Empire, which basically surrounds it on three sides. For quite a lot of uh, right throughout the 19th century, um, so it's always really dependent, both economically and militarily, on the support of the great powers who helped the Greeks gain their independence in the first place. But the uh, right throughout the 19th century, a kind of article of faith for almost everybody who lives in in independent Greece is to extend the boundaries of this very small state, so as to bring in more of the Greek speakers, Orthodox Christians, who still live under the Ottoman Empire. And this meant really expanding to the, well, to the south and the, and the north and the east. The great opportunity to do that came in 1912, um, <clears throat> at a time when there was war between the Ottoman Empire and a new power in, in Europe, which was Italy, there was internal division within the Ottoman Empire and <clears throat> a rare alliance between Greece and its northern Balkan neighbours, the Christian states of um, Bulgaria, Serbia and Montenegro, the last even smaller than Greece. They all, they formed uh, an, an alliance in 1912 and they, <clears throat> they all uh, attacked the Ottoman Empire in the Balkans. And within a very few months, they had basically um, driven the uh, the Ottoman state out of out of Europe 
<clears throat> there was only just a small area around Constantinople itself remained uh, remained part of the Ottoman Empire. But it was a very precarious alliance. And a few a few months later, in the summer of 1913, um, the the alliance actually broke up into a second Balkan War. Bulgaria, which had actually made the most gains of all the allies, was then attacked by the three other allies. Um, and the upshot of that was to establish more or less the front <clears throat> the frontiers that we still have in the Balkans. <clears throat> they weren't absolutely as they are final as they are today, but they were very close. Hmm. Um which 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 left uh, the Ottoman Empire and latterly Turkey with only a very small slice of Europe as far as Adrianople, Adrianople, and uh, the the modern states of uh, Bulgaria and what was for a long time yeah. Yugoslavia, and then Albania emerged a little bit uh, a little bit later. That frontier was established in nineteen twenty uh, in nineteen twenty three. But it was a messy business. It was a violent business. It caused a uh, huge destabilization as uh, about a about a million. Muslims from Europe were displaced into Anatolia, and that in turn created enormous pressure on the Christian Orthodox Greek-speaking communities, <coughs> where they where they were there was which were still very large in different parts of Anatolia, particularly in the West, and that leads on to the well the aftermath of the the consequence of the mm. Balkan Wars. But that really ta- that's the story of the Balkan Wars as far as nineteen thirteen. Now, you mentioned Adrianople or Adyuna today, but the Greeks do capture Adyuna eventually, but they they are reconquered by Mustafa Kemal after World War I, of course. But they do hold it for a brief moment, though. They do. um... The after the first world uh, in the after the first world war by the, as the as the treaties were being negotiated, um, <clears throat> Greece was um, uh, Greece was awarded uh, the eastern part of Thrace, not <clears throat> including Edirne, but not as far as Constantinople, and also uh, quite a large enclave of western <clears throat> western Turkey surrounding the city of Izmir called Smyrna, in in Greece. And Greek troops actually landed in Smyrna and they occupied part of Western Anatolia <laughs> between 1919 and 1922. It's called in Greek the Asia Minor Campaign, but in Turkey it's remembered as the Turkish War of Independence. Because mm-hmm. this war between Greece and Turkey at the end of the First World War was it's it, it brought about the final abolition of the Ottoman Empire and the creation of the modern Republic of Turkey, as it exists today, which was established by the military commander, um, who ironically came from the city of Thessaloniki in today's Greece, Mustafa Kemal, later known as Atatürk, the father of the Turks. And there, it's, it's interesting, interesting to me because, of course, they, they were did fight each other after World War One, and the Greece did have a ship inside Constantinople, so they were fairly close. And even when they fought, had it not been for Mustafa Kemal, the Greeks could have taken, I think, Constantinople as well, and then dream of re. re- creating the Byzantine Empire could have come true, I think, if it had not been mm. 
for Ataturk or Mustafa Kemal, if you will. Yes, I mean, I should have said something about that uh, great dream, as it was always called. It was uh, in the in the 19th century and right up until 1922, when it finally came crashing down in ruins. But for many Greeks, it literally was a dream. And the idea of reconquering Constantinople, that the capital of the Greek-speaking Byzantine mm. Christian Empire, might actually one day become, become the capital of um, a modern, revived Greece, and that uh, that dream was was called. It's still called in Greek the great idea, megali idea in uh, in Greek. Um, and I mean, people you know people still talk about it. It's um, I mean nobody believes it. Obviously, it's something that is attainable now. It, uh, it 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 came to an end very abruptly with that defeat by Mustafa Kemal in 1922. But you're right. Um, the um, the the Greek um, battleship um, Averov was part of the Allied fleet that um, went to the Straits of the Bosphorus and supported the occupation of Constantinople, the Allied occupation of Constantinople from 1918 until 1922. Um, but, I mean, the treaty wasn't going to give Constantinople to the Greeks, and I don't think there's any quite imaginable scenario that that could quite have happened. But who knows? You know, fascinating things. I would say, you know, nothing's in history, nothing's inevitable until it happens. And of course, we're going to round it up soon, but just, just talk really quickly about World War Two because they do get invaded by the Italians, which they fail her because the Italian army was under Mussolini was quite badly and they were, were humiliated more or less. And Germany had to intervene. So let's quickly talk about Germany, sorry, not Greece under World War Two before moving we on to oil and we're going to end okay. soon. Yeah. Well, thank you. Yes, I mean, you've told that, you've told that part of the story <laughs> very, very, very clearly. Um, yes, I mean, after Hitler came to the rescue of his um, ally Mussolini in 1940, uh, Greece and indeed the whole of the Balkans um, were quickly put under uh, occupation. And Greece, <clears throat> the, the state of Greece was actually divided three ways. Nazi Germany, fascist Italy, and Hitler's uh, Balkan ally, Bulgaria. Mm. And there have there'd always been bad blood between Greece and Bulgaria. So the Greece was basically occupied by, uh, by its enemies. It was, it was a brutal occupation. It lasted for three and a half years until the end of 1944. And during that time, a very active resistance was formed, particularly in the mountains of mainland Greece. And uh, that was actually quite effective in liberating quite large parts of mountainous of, of mountainous uh, Greece, but this also created enormous political problems because the uh, the political initiative behind this I mean people were just fighting to reclaim their their, their land their, their their space, but the political leadership was affiliated to the Communist Party, and this was a time of course when there was a complete um, uh, ideological barrier between the capitalist West and communist uh, communist Russia, the uh, the USSR, ruled by Stalin, um, who was of course an ally in the uh, in the Second World War. But as soon as the World War ended, 
um, the divisions between communism and the capitalist West came to the fore, and the Greeks found themselves absolutely on the front line of that division that would in time become known as the Cold War. How close did the Greeks have, and uh, how close were they to becoming and the communist protection, if you will, for the lack of better words? How close were they in the communist states? It's very hard. It's very hard to tell, um, and it's deeply complicated because, I mean, even today the story. You know, there was a, the Greeks fought a civil war <coughs> off and on for six years from 1943 even while the occupation was going on mm. until 1949 five years after it had ended and mm. it's still seen very much in ideological terms but it's also I think it needs to be seen in geopolitical terms um, indeed in nationalist uh, nationalist terms um, I think it played, an, it played an enormous part in all of this that um, when Churchill and Stalin agreed or unofficially agreed to divide, divide up those zones of influence in Europe, Stalin was more interested in the mainland, mm. or the Balkans, and Churchill was much more interested in areas close to the sea. So in a way, the you know Soviet Union and the British Empire, they weren't directly in competition and this seems to have been why Stalin was quite relaxed about the British having uh, a, a predominant influence in Greece, right. um, whereas Stalin was determined to conquer and did conquer pretty crudely all of the rest of the rest of Eastern Europe. Whether he could have, I mean, in terms of ideology, in terms of support, he could have gained in Greece very possibly he could have. But I think the geopolitical calculation was that Greece has always been a maritime country. It depends. It lives by the sea. And it was probably, you know, from Stalin's point of view, it probably wasn't defensible or worth trying to defend. And I suspect that's the bo the bottom line reason why actually Greece, kind of defying geography, stayed with part of the West throughout the Cold War, because it's part of the West through the Mediterranean and through the importance of maritime power. The British, of course, pulled out in 1947, handed over to the Americans. But of course, the American Sixth Fleet has uh, been based in Greece really ever since. Of course, and of course, uh, we're going to run it up pretty soon. But of course, in 1974, the, the monarchy is abolished and they soon find oil which launched them into a really brief, more golden age shortly. So let's talk about the oil, finding oil and the short, as I call it, golden age for Greece. Well, I mean... You're right. I mean, that's a good way to frame it, because 1973 is the year of the Yom Kippur War and what I think we now call the first oil crisis. Mm. There was suddenly a you know, serious, really serious shortage of oil <coughs> throughout the West, which far more even than today depended on it. Um, you know, there was talk of rationing throughout the West. And, um, uh, you know, it caused it caused havoc of various sorts. Um at the very within months of the two year two months after the end of the Yom Kippur War, an oil prospecting company found oil off the Greek island of Thassos, and you know nobody could quite believe it. You know because suddenly, the 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 hunt the hunt was on. It was everybody was desperate to find more oil, and they found some in Greece. It was under the under the sea. Now, 
that oil field didn't never has never actually yielded very much. But it was the beginning of serious exploration for oil and gas under the Eastern Mediterranean. Right. And <clears throat> suddenly, after the return of the end of dictatorship in Greece in 1974, the return to civilian rule, democracy, it was also the time of new tension between Greece and Turkey. They fought, they, they, they came close to fighting over the island of Cyprus, which was divided um, uh, between a Greek and a Turkish zone in the same year. But the, at the same time, you know, fatefully, Greece and Turkey are competing to find sources of oil that they can each each exploit. And suddenly, from the Turkish point of view, it matters that Ataturk, in determining the basis for the Turkish nation that he created, um, thought nothing of the sea. He didn't care about particularly about the seabed. Right. So the you know the Turkish um, uh, <clears throat> modern Turkey, uh, it you know it, it, he never expressed any interest in Cyprus. Um, he accepted that the Aegean, all of it, the Aegean islands, except yeah. for two very small strategically placed islands, would all would be part of Greece. But that meant that the the continental shelf under the Aegean was, you know, was contested because where it's international waters, the Turks wanted to, pros- wanted to prospect for oil, and suddenly there was big money involved. And more recently still, that spilled out into the eastern Mediterranean. There's drilling, there's there's um, saber rattling around in the coastal waters and beyond the coastal waters of both Cyprus and Crete. It, ever since, it's been a source of political tension between Greece yes. and Turkey. And even in, a, even in the days when now everybody's talking of trying to wean ourselves off oil and gas and find non-carbon substitutes for these, Greece and Turkey are locked in intense negotiations yeah. and uh, various threats are being issued from the Turkish side, indeed, about rights of exploration towards these these precious mineral resources under the sea. Yeah, because there, as, as you know, the, the, I had the historian on about the Ottoman Navy a while ago, and she said that when she was visiting Turkey and Greece first, instead of going to one island, but she could have easily just that kind of taken the ship there. For I don't remember which island it was, but she she first had to take her ship to the one island, go through some security there, I think, and then she had to go mm. to the, to another mm. island. So it's really complicated, even for tourism, where we both could have benefited from you know working with each other. They instead complicate things even for tourists and regular people who want to visit both Turkey and Greece. So, so even with this tension, it's really complicated. So many things for not just for it's not just for the government, but for people in general. No, it's it, I mean it it has you know it's 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 some revived age old rivalries, tensions, competition, um, and um, between you know sort of Christian Christian Greece, Muslim Turkey. Um, I mean, actually, there were times in the 20th century, even in the 19th century, when Greece and Turkey as states, or Greece and the Ottoman Empire, actually had perfectly perfectly good working relations, working and commercial relationships. But since 1974, um, they've been, again, they've mm. been a bit on and off, but they've been more off than on. And at the moment, um, there's further, further polarisation, because in addition to the competition in those respects, um, the 
Turkish government under President Erdogan is seemingly becoming much more authoritarian uh, in its mm. uh, in, in its in its style um, and uh, more militaristic in its um, certainly in its rhetoric, um, with the result that it's, it's strangely, I mean, it's not even reported in the in the national press in Britain. But um, since last summer, um, Turkish government spokesmen have actually been issuing explicit threats against Greece. There was talk of actually rockets falling on Athens if the Greek government were not to concede to various Turkish um, uh, Turkish demands. Mm. So, um, unfortunately, this tension is really ratcheting up to um, a higher pitch than ever today. Thank you. I'm fair. Our time has run out. I know you just places to go and places to, to things to do. So, of course, again, do you have anything you want to promote? And where can people find your book, The Greeks, A Global History? And any links you wanted to put in the description below before you go? I'm sorry? Any links you wanted to put in the description below and anything else you have to wish to promote? Uh, well, I'm not on social media, so I, I can't really, I, I, I don't think I can contribute anything here. Okay, thank you very much for coming on the, to do this two-part mini-series on the Greeks, a global history. This has been Vedat H12. We are available on Twitter, Spotify, Instagram, under Vedat H12. If you, please, you can find us on Spotify, YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Wherever you can find that podcast these days, if you are on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, please consider writing a little review. Also, make sure to check out some other episodes that we have. I'm sure you're going to find something that you like. My name is Alan. This has been that age 12. Please like, share and subscribe. And I'll see you next time. Take care. And thank you for your hospitality. I really enjoyed My it. My pleasure. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.